Is this it? Is this really it? Is this the last episode of the Eclipse Viewer? Well, folks, I'm here to tell you that, as far as I can tell, it is. This is episode 60, Late Ozu, part 3. I'm David Blakesley, the one guy who's been here for all 60, or 60 and a half, I guess you could say, of these episodes. And uh, we are here to talk about the final two films, uh, Late Autumn and The End of Summer, uh, in the Eclipse series, Volume 3, Late Ozu. I'm joined, as I have been for the past several years, by my erstwhile ally, partner, and podcasting pal, Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Hello, David. It's a good and sad occasion to be with you today. <laughs> yeah, good and sad, but, you know, it's all in all, it's a plus, it's a positive. Uh, we will we will endeavor forward and, and do new things as we prepare for the coming transition. And we're also joined by a veteran uh, of the Eclipse Viewer making his third consecutive appearance as we wrap up this uh, this series <laughs> of podcasts. Matt Gasteyer, Ozu fan number one. How you doing, Matt? <laughs> I don't know if I'm number one, but I guess I'm probably up there. Uh, I'm doing well. Close to the front of the line, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm good on, to have you. Yeah, and I'm honored to be here uh, for uh, what hopefully is not your final episode, uh, but we, we shall see. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I just want to say, because I'm here, I feel like I'm speaking for all of your listeners, uh, on this episode that, uh, uh, you know, it's really been a pleasure to listen to, uh, your takes on, on all of these, uh, boxes, you know, there's because of their, uh, their sort of obscurity and criterion and just in, in movie, movie dumb in general, uh, there's not as much of an opportunity to talk about these movies with uh, with people either in person or online. So uh, it's really great to uh, to hear um, some some fine exchanges uh, about these these really special movies that I think um, deserve more shine than they get. Well, yeah, it's it's been a great experience, Matt, and uh, I'm really happy to have you along with us. And I, we will we will kind of get into a little bit of a retrospective mode uh, towards the end of this episode as we kind of wrap up our series. But yeah, for people who maybe haven't been following along, just to fill you in, uh, the Eclipse Viewer podcast is a is a podcast that's been dedicated to the Criterion Collections Eclipse series of DVDs. These, uh, you know now by now kind of a, a semi-extinct line uh, there's always a chance that they may bring it back but we have covered all 44 of these boxes um starting back in 2012 with my uh you know, first podcasting partner rob nishimura we did several of the sets uh and then took a little bit of a hiatus before trevor barrett persuaded me to get back in the saddle and finish up the project and trevor i really so much appreciate your initiative in that. I mean, I, I really thought we were just done and it was a cool little effort, but kind of a partial thing that we got going. But uh, you've seen me through and I, I really am grateful for your encouragement and of course your uh, fantastic input over the past several years. So yeah, uh, just want to well, give thanks, you some David. shout outs there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's been very selfish of me, but I'm glad you gained too. <laughs> well, hopefully we, we've shared a little bit of the joy with uh, listeners from different uh, walks of life and different spots on the globe. Uh, people who have kind of peeked into these somewhat mystifying, obscure boxes, you know, three, four, five films that, you know, a lot of us have never heard of, but 
they seem to be important. <laughs> they must be somehow worthwhile. What's inside? And that's what we've been trying to do over the past uh, several years now, uh, past five years, a little bit more. Uh, but we do have some business to attend to today before we get into all that laudatory, uh, you know, uh, reminiscing and all of that. So maybe we'll have a little bit more of that as we get to the end. But let's talk about uh, the last two films. These are Ozu's entry into the 1960s, late autumn. And the end of summer. This, of course, is uh, continuing on into Ozu's color era, this last uh, kind of elegiac phase of his career. And I use that word elegiac uh, pretty deliberately because these really are uh, somewhat mournful films. I mean, if you just take them as a pair, they are open. They open with a funeral and end with a, another funeral and, and the death of a family patriarch. And this is a. These are two films that are made very conscious of mortality. Uh, Ozu was, I think, what, in his uh, late 50s. Yeah, of course, he died on his 60th birthday. So he was in his very late 50s and 60 and 61 when these films were released. He had one more film left uh, in his destiny, An Autumn Afternoon, which we are looking at doing another episode on for the Criterion Cast main episodes sometime in the next uh, now, several weeks, month or so, we'll figure out the details later. But uh, we'd like to get together, the three of us, to and, and uh, also have Scott and I join us to uh, do a little quartet to wrap up Ozu's uh, uh, incredible career. But uh, we're not quite to that point. We're just going to talk about his uh, penultimate and penultimate to the penultimate <laughs> movies, uh, the last, uh, the last uh, two of the last three that he made. So um, let's just talk about uh, Late Autumn. Man, I'm going to kind of kick it over your way. You are pretty well on record as saying Late Spring is the greatest movie ever made. And Late Autumn is pretty well known by people who study those who to this level as kind of a reconfiguration of Late Spring. So uh, why don't you kind of give us a little intro and kind of see where the conversation leads from there? Sure. Well, uh, Late Autumn is uh, certainly a reworking of Late Spring um, structurally. Uh, but it's an interesting uh, reworking because thematically it's almost exactly the opposite movie, or at least a, it's a response to the themes that are at play in Late Spring. Um, the basic plot is very similar. Uh, it focuses on um, a, uh, a parent and a uh, daughter, and the daughter is getting older in traditional Japanese terms uh, and ready for marriage. And she is unwilling to, uh, or uninterested at least, in um, leaving uh, the parent to uh, get married and move out of the house. Uh, the, the most obvious difference, of course, is that in late spring, it's a father and in late autumn, it's a mother. Um, and of course, the most obvious similarity is that in Late Spring, the daughter is played by Setsuko Hara, and in Late Autumn, uh, the mother is played by Setsuko Hara. Um, the biggest shift in terms of perspective in the movie is that in Late Autumn, the film is largely about uh, the people who are pressuring the daughter to get married. 
Um, in the case of late spring, it was an aunt. Uh, in, but here it's uh, three men who were old friends of uh, Setsuko Hara's uh, deceased husband. Um, and that shift in perspective really uh, changes what the movie is about in a lot of ways. Um, and it, be it becomes a much more complicated narrative because there are sort of these mini stretches where the movie is about these three uh, older men. It opens with them um, talking about uh, the husband and, and, and about Setsuko Hara and her daughter. Um, and, uh, and then it shifts, uh, you know, at, at kind of unexpected moments to a story about the, the, the mother and daughter. Um, and the film in that way kind of becomes about the pressures that are surrounding the core conflict of the movie, as opposed to in late spring, um, really examining the dynamic between the parent and the child, uh, and what is going through their experience, um, in, in, in moving into this new phase in their life. Um, and so it, it becomes kind of a, and, 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 you know, I'm sure we'll get into kind of the deeper thematic differences, but it becomes kind of, uh, a film about the, um, the societal pressures that, that come with getting older and with, um, with moving into uh, sort of the uh, adulthood of your life. Um, another interesting kind of comparison, however, I think in some ways it's it's more similar to Equinox Flower, the last film that we talked about uh, in this box, uh, because it it's a it's about the patriarchy um, and in and and kind of ridiculing it to a certain degree um the these these men don't have the same weight that uh, uh is it shin, shin saboro uh had in equinox flower um they're they're kind of like the three stooges a little, a little bit um there's a lot of like uh they're they're diminished in perspective they don't feel like the heads of of families um and uh and they also, and, and then the, the settings are almost identical to, uh, Equinox flower. I mean, there's a Luna bar, uh, the, all of the sets look practically the same. I, I think they just switched out the, uh, the signs that were in the bar. <laughs> um, and so in that way, uh, it becomes kind of this movie about Ozu movies, um, because then you get into the fact that, um, the, the woman who plays the daughter, I forget her name, um, is the, is actually the daughter of a, a an actor who was in, um, some of Ozu's silent films. Um, all, all of these people who are in the movie come from previous, uh, Ozu movies to the, to a large degree. Um, it becomes this movie about shifting into a new era of Ozu movies. Um, and in that way, it mirrors the technical aspects of it because Ozu is constantly toying with the expectations of what you do when you watch an Ozu movie. 
um, I'm, I'm running, I'm, I'm running, uh, sentences at this point because there's so much yeah. I have to say well. about this movie. So I'll, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, uh, com- you know, make commentary on my own, uh, <laughs> go, I'll go meta myself and, and just, uh, kick it over to you guys. Uh, if there's any kind of thoughts that you have on, on the, the many things I rambled about just now. <laughs> no. Trevor, you want to pick it up? Well, so I'm, I'm coming at this. I did this deliberately, listeners. Well, you guys know I didn't do this deliberately. <laughs> um, I don't know. I haven't seen Late Spring yet, so I'm coming at you from the perspective of someone just visiting uh, this film without seeing the terms, first one. Yes. Yeah, purely right. on its own terms. And I'm very excited to see Late Spring. Obviously, I, I, I know a lot about it um, and maybe even more than than I, I would have before watching this movie. Um but it'll probably feel like a rewatch at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it might, it might. But I'm very excited to do it because I I loved this one. This one was so much fun, and I love how how fluid Ozu can move from comedy into just this light light melancholy. I mean, uh, as Matt mentioned, the Three Stooges, those three men, their meddling can can look so fun and like a good old you know a good old Hollywood comedy. But the results are just slightly melancholic, and you see its effect on on uh, Akiko and on Ayako, and its effect on them as they start meddling a little bit too much and and start questioning their own motives, and maybe even letting some of their their barriers break down as they start to think of the possibilities of marriage again, um, or or their desires to to not <laughs> get married again um especially given the circumstances here i just thought that this whole little construct of a, of wanting a 24 year old daughter to get married uh leads to so much um exploration of of all of the things going on around them of of their their cultural um forces that are trying to make them do the right thing i say in quotes and their little personal um, concerns and problems that are that are going on in their lives as they start to look at these possibilities. Uh, so I, I am very excited to see late spring if it kind of delves a little bit more into the dynamic between parent and and child, uh, because I I think that's a, a great thing here. But I would agree with you, Matt. There seems to be a lot more focus on just a lot of the other forces that are coming into play here. And so I found the film just very sweet. And and touching in in this very melancholic times passing, um, what are your dreams and what are your realities and, and 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 what are your disappointments and where do you put your foot down to to protect yourself from from more of that? And so yeah, I I, I loved it. I'm very excited when when this is over. I, I will step back and finish off my Ozu um, with those those three in the middle there. And uh, and get back get back and 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 see late spring uh, on its own terms as well. But but yeah, for now, um, this one was just delightful. Well, let's take it back to the beginning. This this opening scene that's uh, set at not really a funeral. I, I guess I misspoke a little bit. It was more of a, a memorial service that is done 
I guess, uh, certain numbers of years after a, a friend uh, or relative passes away, there's a kind of a ceremonial gathering. I think this was like the six or seven year anniversary of the passing of Mr. Miwa. And you see the three men uh, talking together and they kind of, you know, gather in this room and the mother, uh, the Sasukahara character, uh, the widow of Mr. Miwa, and her daughter are there, Akiko and Ayako, and and the men are already kind of talking a little bit about them as they you know as they kind of go through the the ceremony, the ritual, and then afterwards, you know, you could tell these men have a little bit of the hot side for for the widow. They always have. Yeah, oh, yeah. They always <laughs> have. Yeah, and and she's just been sitting there available, and yet the the two men who remain married are just from that strata of society where having an affair and stepping out on their wives is really just unthinkable. And yet there's that one man uh, who is widowed, uh, the lucky dog, and he, you know, but, 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 you know, there's just so much propriety preventing these people from really just acting on the, you know, the obvious attractions that they feel. And it is quite a fascinating dialogue of just, uh, you know, men in that that transitional phase that we've been discussing over these past couple episodes, where, you know, and maybe in times past, the patriarchy was was so strong and unrivaled that, hey, if you see a woman, and you just go ahead and make your move. But that's not exactly where we are now, and and the women are becoming a little bit more um, entitled to their own opinions and their own uh, decisions about how they're going to live their lives, and that's that's a big piece of what we've got going on here because. Uh, you know, pretty quickly the, the, the men's thoughts turn to how can we get Ayako married? I mean, she's 24, my goodness, it's about past the expiration date and, and we've got to, we've got to make some arrangements here. And by the way, there's this Akiko and, and she's out there. And, and then we, and once they start recognizing that Ayako has a pretty strong attachment to her current arrangement. She, she likes being independent. She likes living with her mother. She doesn't want to set her mother up for some kind of struggle. Uh, uh, even though mother seems to have a, her own, uh, economic setup. She's a, she's an instructor at a dressmaking school. So she's got her own income going and seems to be doing well enough, but there's still that emotional bond that would be strained if not altogether broken. Uh, once Ayako is is married and and is kind of off uh, on her own life, so Ayako recognizes that, and she she also seems to have an idea that you know things are different now, and and young women shouldn't have to get married, and and again this this central tension that Ozu continues to play out here is you know uh, to what degree have we changed? To what degree are we still bound by tradition? And uh, yeah, that, that, that seems to be kind of the engine that drives this film. I mean, I, I have to, uh, make the, uh, the, the point that the, the idea, the most believable plot line in any movie ever is that all, all three of these people are secretly in love with Setsuko Hara. <laughs> yeah. And she's, <laughs> she is just so exquisite and she almost always is. Yeah. And, and you know and she she obviously plays uh, a widow in both of the films that uh that we're going to cover um and and the transition from uh sort of unmarried daughter um she she was a widow in Tokyo story as well um to to into uh to being a widow um keeps her sort of virginal uh 
um, presentation that Ozu was, you know, just uh, really kind of cast her in, uh, in these films. Uh, she is somebody that uh, is sort of pure and um, uh, uncorrupted. And her, uh, and I think the way that they, uh, the way that he kind of juxtaposes the daughter here with uh, Setsuko Hara's character in Late Spring is really interesting because in Late Spring, uh, there was there was no indication at all that she was interested in uh, in men in a romantic sense. The reason why she didn't want to get married in Late Spring was that she was happy the way that she was and she was fine being with uh, her father and living together in their kind of domestic bliss. Um, yeah, dad was like all the male companionship she really needed. She right, and they had have they a had husband with all the entitlements. Yeah, and they had they a healthy assume. rapport. They were able to tease each other and um, you know kind of just uh, be comfortable. Um, and I think in, in this film, she's she still has that attitude. She's carried that attitude into this uh, widow role because she's happy the way that she is. And the daughter is also happy the way that she is. But from the very beginning, the daughter does not dismiss the idea of being in love with somebody. Um, and I think that that's ultimately the shift here is that Setsuko Hara never really flirted with um, contemporary uh, attitudes uh, in late spring. She was, to a certain degree, a modern Japanese woman. She, she was, you know, riding bikes with her hair flowing in the wind, um, going out on, on uh, um, adventures with, uh, with men she's not married to. Um, but but it was a group. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, it was a, but it was a very, um, it, again, it was a very kind of respectable uh, approach to that aspect. Um, yeah, where, she's not antisocial or withdrawn. Right. She's just she's she's confident and and okay just as she is without having the appendage of a husband or adopting the wifely role right right and i, I think the daughter here is is more uh, a modern japanese girl and i think uh that attitude is really what the movie is about and that that's where it becomes really interesting because in late spring late spring is ultimately a you know a movie about change about the the struggle between tradition and modernity um and the difficulties of that transition both for that family and for japan in general and i especially think, in that post-war yes era, you for know, sure kind of, yeah yeah, the, yeah. and that's always thing. hovering over over late spring um in a way that i think the the wealth of these people sort of uh, of these men sort of hovers over late autumn and and i think late autumn then becomes this movie about okay well we are in this modern world all of the young people in this modern world sort of take for granted those changes that have happened they assume that you marry somebody that you love they assume that um you don't have to get married uh and it, it, if you don't want to and you can still have um romantic experiences with other people and it's the the realization the gradual realization that society is not uh just this free and uh you know 
experience that's absent of, of any sort of pressures um, that come from the older generation um, and from society at large um, sort of crashing down on on this this woman uh, that really makes the the conflict here I think very um, very different from late spring but but very complementary because he, it, it deepens the complexity of that transition. It's not just that change is hard. It's that one. It's that you're never really done with with that battle. There's no way to win the that battle because there there's always going to be that conflict. Um, no matter you know, no matter where you are in that transition. Well, and it seems to me that Ayako is is a conflicted character because she, as you said, she takes for granted the fact that she doesn't have to get married. She's got this kind of. A, excuse to live her life the way that she would like to and whether that means because she doesn't have anyone she has in mind at this particular point in time or because she wants to stay with her mother because she's got comfort because she's scared of the future away from her mom you know there there are various ways of taking it and yet when the opportunity arises and yeah there's a lot of uh, problems with this opportunity but when the opportunity arises for Akiko the mom to get remarried, Ayako isn't sympathetic to that desire. She she seems to think that she seems to kind of retreat into an old way of thinking herself, um, which is this is wrong. You know, you shouldn't do this. And and yeah, again, I, I realize there's a lot of complications there because a lot of she she recognizes that they might be doing it just so that it opens up the door for Ayako to get married and leave. But I think there is something there about she, she wants she wants the comforts that she has. And when the modern point of view of not having to marry um, serves her needs, she's going to she's going to assert that when a more traditional view of no, you, you're going to disgrace the memory of our of my father. You're, you shouldn't get remarried. You're a widow. When that serves her purposes, you know she's she's free to play that card as well. Um, this this film seems to be kind of showing a little bit of the instability of of any one view and of maybe the the younger generations um, taking for granted and starting to turn it all to their to their own um, kind of selfish uh, purposes and and again. All, all with, you know, as is great with Ozu, all of this complicated by the multitude of other influences and ways that this this hits them both because of culture, because of their own personal proclivities, because of their relationships with each other. Um, it's just so rich as it, as it explores these. But I, I do find Ayako's own situation in in this transitionary period or, or almost fully transitioned, you know, to an extent at this time, um, very interesting. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the role of the the aging parent, and maybe in both films, but in particular here, we we do have Satsukahara's character, uh, Mrs. Miwa, sort of at least on the surface for a period of time, agreeing to go along with this this uh, proposal of marriage to one of the the, the, the three businessmen, the, the widow widower of the bunch. And, and is that, is that seen as a act of noble sacrifice in order to sort of uh, accelerate the process to, to sort of 
pave the way? Is it is it a is it a failure? Is it is it a denial of of self here? Uh, what what do people think about uh, her her character's apparent willingness to you know allow the charade or the facade to to advance to a point where Ayako could say, okay, I will get married. I mean, uh, is that is that is that deceptive in any way, or is it just kind of a facilitation of the inevitable? <laughs> what, do, what do people think about that? I, I think that just like in life, there's there are too many factors at play to really pin it down. And I don't mean that to dismiss what you're saying here, David. No, no, I, I, I think I, I think that ambiguity is essential. That's that is yeah, right in the zone of where Ozu is trying to place us. You know, is yeah. like you can't really parse it down to a singular motive or a whether this is laudable or you know something we should condemn and reject it's just what it is yeah she 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 both wants it and doesn't want it i think she she both recognizes it's good for her daughter and probably wants some of this companionship for herself on some level but at the same time she doesn't you know i mean i, I think of 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 things like this in my own life where it's just too difficult you know there are too many too many um tugs in all these different directions yeah for, and you'll never sort it out understand. or figure it out yeah. to have a one yeah. rational conclusion so it's just like all right just just cut the string and let's get it over with <laughs> and, it, and i like how the film also makes it so that we, we we see the response of everybody else to it there are those who think it's a good thing um you know the the friend we haven't brought up yet yuriko um her telling Ayako not to be selfish. Let's let your mom get remarried. This will be good for her and good for you. You know, this is for, for various reasons, but you also see the response of the, of the men and, and, and their own selfish desires as they've kind of recast them into noble desires, you know, of, of, of all, all to get Ayako out there and, and, and starting her life and getting married before she's too old. You know, all, there's so many great, um, uh, explorations of these motives and of of the noble versus the selfish and versus the sacrifice that uh yeah it, it, it's it's just such a rich exploration of them that i i can't say which one i even quite fall down on other than at the end of the film you know i akiko decides not to get married and is that because she realizes it was a ruse and so she doesn't want to let herself down she doesn't want to go into that kind of marriage, though she did at one time? Or is it because she realizes that Ayako is going to get married anyway? I now no longer have to do it. Thank goodness I didn't want to in the first place. You know, I, I, it's the, the one thing we know is that these this parent and this daughter, that they, they, they love each other and they, they hate to see this time pass where they are together and where they can go to dinner once a month or once every two months. You know, they hate to see that time pass. And yet, they're it, it's going to, and how best are they going to deal with it? Yeah, they they can recreate their old vacations. They can they can have that life, but now it's time to end. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I I mean I I it's interesting because I guess I hadn't even considered the idea that she was genuinely interested in getting married. I think part of that is that there is none of that. I feel there is none of that ambiguity in late spring. Um, and then you add on the fact that uh, Setsuko Hara's character, uh, you know, like I said, she's so kind of pure 
and uh, they they're, the way that she's portrayed as being this person who was married to the one love of her life and now he's gone. And so she just sort of sails off into the distance, um, which is, you know, uh, sadly kind of the way that her, the rest of her life was characterized after Ozu died and she retired from acting. Um, so I guess I hadn't even consider because of that kind of those preconceived notions about her and about the role that she was playing. I hadn't even considered the fact that you're absolutely right. There is no indication in this movie that she is saying, aha, I wasn't going to get married all along, but you're stuck. <laughs> um, and not to say she, you know, that was ever the attitude. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, there's definitely uh, looking at it from that perspective, uh, the possibility that she was saying, well, I guess I'm going to have to get married in order, uh, for my daughter to get married. Uh, this is as good a man as, as any, um, this is the way yeah, this there is was definitely go. that moment where, you know, it looked like we were <laughs> not going to have a double wedding, but you know, right. that, that things were both going to advance and sort of at that last moment of opportunity, she was able to withdraw, uh, with tact and with dignity and grace and, and all of that. And her uh, thwarted suitor reluctantly had yeah. to accept. And he didn't have the demands or the, the right to demand, you know, fulfillment there. It was always kind of a tentative deal. And especially since uh, the the arrangement had been so badly bungled. <laughs> That's where the Three Stooges analogy definitely comes in. I mean, it's not really slapstick, but but the way they tried to just kind of corner her with their little, you know, um, hints and allegations almost that, uh, oh, there's a guy who's interested. What do you think? But they never really kind of came right out and, and, right. and finalized the deal. These another, another sort of indication of dwindling masculinity. These three men of business just can't quite get the job done. You know, uh, maybe, maybe at a, at a earlier stage of life, they would have been a little bit more on the ball, a little bit more direct and clear in their communication. But, you know, there's a, there's a pretty blunt misunderstanding that takes place between mother and daughter. And I guess if there's a critique to be made, there's a little bit of a, of a exaggerated reaction, I think, on Ayako's part. I mean, she never really gives her mother the chance to explain, oh, this, right. this you know, what do you mean I'm engaged? What, what do you mean about this? Uh, I'm seeing him. I mean, uh, Ayako just leaps to huge conclusions and never, I mean, just basically storms back out of the house before her mother really has a chance to give any explanation. And I know that, in a sense, that kind of furthers the plot, but you know, I don't know. It's it's maybe one small little nick of, of credibility in terms of how we've spoken about how these films feel so much like real life and 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 actual people having their conversations. I, I at the moment that I was watching it or rewatching it again recently, it's like you know, I think if if this was a real situation, mom would have said, "Hey, hold on here right. a minute." You know, things are not quite as you think they are, but we didn't really have that exchange. Yeah, I think the two two points about that. Um, I, I agree. It's one of those situations where two characters are having a conversation. And if just one of them said what seems to be the most obviously logical thing to say, um, and just sort of come out, came out and said what they were talking about, then it all would be forgiven. Um, uh, so it, it is sort of this, uh, delicate dance that they're doing in that sequence. Um, but 
as I'm thinking about the ambiguity of, of Setsuko Hara's character um, marrying or not marrying uh, and, and whether she wants it, uh, wants it to happen at any point, um, I'm thinking about the fact that I think the ambiguity in late spring is really about whether uh, the daughter uh, get, gets married because her father is getting married or if it's because of these other shifts that are happening around her and the pressures that she or or sort of the the opening of expectations that she feels. You know, there is a lot of ambiguity about about her uh, relationship with the man that she eventually marries because we never meet him or even see him. Um, she seems genuinely happy after she meets him. And I think here, you know, there's, there's not really, uh, uh, any ambiguity around that, obviously. Um, so the shift becomes more about, uh, whether Setsugahara wants to, uh, get, get married as opposed to, why uh, the daughter character is getting married. Um, and I think that means that a lot of the drama has to shift to uh, that realization from the daughter that her mother might get married. I think one really interesting thing I, I noticed this time watching this movie, in the fir very first uh, scene where uh, the daughter and, the, and uh, Setsukohara are talking with the three men, once they've moved into the room, um, and are having a conversation with them um, at the memorial service. I the the cuts back and forth between mother and daughter were very striking, and I realized that the reason for that is that there's a lot of stuff on the table in front of Setsuko Hara, and there's nothing on the table in front of the daughter and and uh, Ayako. And and I think uh, if you watch the rest of the movie with that in mind. Um, you know, Ozu is very well known for having different branded bottles and, um, and, you know, sake, sake, uh, bottles or, or Johnny Walker red in this movie, um, and sort of sitting in the foreground in order to kind of use, uh, the comp use for depth in the composition, especially for the front on conversation shots that he does. And the daughter but the continuity isn't always exact. Either. Yes. He will move things around oh, yeah. kind of playfully sure. or <laughs> Well, it's all about it's all about the, the composition of that shot as opposed to uh, any sort of believable uh, matching um, across shots. He wants that shot to look beautiful and and thematically appropriate. And I, I and so I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that uh, this is happening. Um, and it, it happens again when um, when she's uh, when she's um, speaking with um, the Shin, Shin Saburo character, um, and he reveals to her finally that her mother, uh, it, it's all but definite, or it's not definite yet. I, he says one of those things uh, that the mother is going to get married, and in the first half of that scene, it, the the pattern continues. Um, the the stuff in the front is out of focus as you're looking at her. And in the, the moment that he reveals that his, her mother is going to get married, we cut to um, a, a woman bringing food to sit down on the table. And the next shot of Ayako has a giant black box sitting in front of her. And all of a sudden, everything's in focus in front of her. And she's got all of this uh, social clutter um, in her life. And it's uh, of, I mean, that moment, uh, and it's a quiet moment when the woman brings the food, and, and it's a very 
uh, notable transition from this world of hers that it, that is sort of absent of any of these um, worries and um, pressures uh, to all of a sudden realizing that she has to make this change, that she has to make a decision about these things, and that uh, these people are not going to go away who are trying to get her to live the life that is expected of her. And she needs to make, you know, some of these big decisions for herself. Um, and and I, I think it's a very striking kind of transition um, in the same way that the transition from uh, the moment where she storms out of the, the house after fighting with her mother um, to uh to the, the happy peppy music as she walks into the sushi par, uh, sushi bar that, um, that her, uh, her friend's parents own, um, is just a very jarring, uh, transition. And I think Ozu's constantly playing with that. It's like you're, you, uh, in this movie and, and it makes it one of his kind of most technically complex films because he's setting up all these expectations for you. Um, and then he, he doesn't play them out in the way that you expect them to based on having watched previous Ozu movies or having watched movies in general. I mean, you wouldn't expect to hear that kind of a happy peppy music coming after one of the most intense scenes uh, in the film. And yet there it is because he, he wants you to be kind of um, realizing all of these kind of, you know, significant changes that are happening around you and you're unable to kind of get your bearing um, before uh, we've moved on to the next one. Oh, that's a that's a really wonderful observation, Matt, and and it's the kind of thing that makes these films, you know, very much worthy of revisiting. Because, you know, maybe at a subconscious level, this will hit, you know, first or second time viewers. But you really have to, you know, just sort of settle into this environment to uh, to catch all these things. And and there are so many other elements of of the uh, you know the late Ozu uh, phase that that are so 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 enjoyable for me to you know compare especially now that i've watched these films in somewhat close proximity to each other i mean i i'm just sort of struck by some of the other kind of recycled bits the uh you know the, the men kind of with their little speculations about uh gender roles and and in in the previous film it was like the role of the husband or wife in determining the gender of the child here we have the the uh the dominant aspects of of the woman in terms of uh the longevity of the husband <laughs> you know and so mr miwa who was married to satsuko hara this pristine uh you know example of japanese femininity you know he had a short life as i said he paid a very steep price for, for his right. privileges uh but uh, then right after they kind of have their little uh you know uh, you know kind of expansion on these ideas here comes this kind of stout crabby <laughs> japanese woman uh, and uh, oh i'm sure your husband's doing very well he's going to enjoy a long life so it's got a little bit of that <laughs> slightly misogynistic a uh, little uh, uh you know humor at the expense of this woman who really doesn't know what's going on in fact she's she's doing a very dutiful service of of uh you know bringing in their sake and their snacks and and they're kind of having a little fun at her expense and it's just like a little a little tweak, a little twist on uh, territory that we've seen Nozu explore before, and there's there's other pieces of that sort in this film. Yeah, and it's fair. I mean, it's very their exchange about the mother and daughter as well at the beginning, where it's like, well, if I had my choice, I'd still rather take the mother. <laughs> you know, it's very it's very catty and just kind of like um, 
I, I mean, it's it, it's kind of a surprising conversation to hear in an Ozu movie, but he's so interested in, in dressing them down throughout the rest of the film, especially in that that confrontation um, with the friend where she refuses to sit down and oh, refu- it's, it's you know she's she's right. hovering over them, and that that's really when they become those uh, those children. You know, a lot of the writing about this movie makes comparisons uh, to Ozu's college films uh, from the 20s and 30s um, and uh, yeah. and how they, yeah. these men sort of mirror that uh, those those characters in those films and it's really true I mean they, they, but those were guys in their early 20s right, versus exactly. or in their 50s and, and have lived some life but should know better but they're just as clueless and guided by their own immature impulses as, as ever yeah and they lack the bite of of the the father figure in equinox flower i mean there there is that um as as you've mentioned before um in, in the previous podcast there there's there's kind of this uh, undercurrent of uh, power that he wants to wield over people in certain moments in that film and you don't really get that ever in these. These are these are defanged men that uh, that are just um, you know kind of trying in in their own ways to make their lives interesting. <laughs> you know, as he, as he says at the end of the film, it, it, uh, life is simple. It's the people that complicate thing, things, and they're the ones that. I mean, he's talking about himself, <laughs> and uh, and so I think that you know the, the, Ozu's constantly undermining them uh, throughout the movie, and I think that that scene with with the friend is really where it comes to a to a head. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about Ozu himself as the you know never married man who lived with his mother to the end of her life and then passed away shortly after she died. I mean maybe it's probably I I yeah, I don't have the frame of reference to fully analyze Ozu himself as a as a human being, but it is very interesting that so many of his films, you know, uh, dwelt on this tension about the you know the pressures to get married or not and yet he himself, you know, in some ways lived a, a life that was very free of all those obligations that he chronicles so meticulously. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't have children. He didn't have the responsibilities of supporting a wife or having to adjust his own, uh, you know, his, his own use of his time on this world, in this world, uh, to, to meet her needs, uh, whoever that wife may, may ever have been. Uh, he was very content to <laughs> live in his mother's basement, so to speak, and, uh, just do what he did. I, I don't know. I, I, and for either of you, do you have any, any thoughts on, on, uh, Ozu's, uh, privilege of position to to make these observations or critiques of domestic life he must have had a lot of friends telling him how he'd be better <laughs> off doing something else because he he sure knows that perspective <laughs> he's he, he definitely um has you know it, it's kind of like the emily dickinson thing with poet who doesn't seem to have ever gotten out of her house and yet writes so eloquently about longing and love and and work and you know various things that you you really kind of look at her and you think when did you have that experience that would allow you to empathize and to understand the nuances of that so so well 
And yeah, that's kind of how I feel here. He just must have been an incredibly observant person who, who because of his own life choices, just had to understand where other people were coming from as they talked to him about their own lives or about what they thought he should be doing with his own life. There's just a, it is surprising um, how sympathetic he can be to, to so many of these various viewpoints uh, as he's exploring things that, you know, he didn't have these relationships. Yeah, I think there's always a tendency to um, look at the artist's life and see how it's reflected in the work. And sometimes that can be very um, revealing. And, uh, you know, many artists use uh, sort of an autobiographical approach uh, to, to their films. Um, uh, but I think for a lot of people, uh, they take their passions and they take their observations and experiences, um, and they, they, they pour it into, uh, the, the work that they create. Um, and I, you know, I think the more relatable and the more, uh, the, the stories seem to uh, reflect people's own lives uh, and speak to who they feel they are in their relationships and in their personal experiences, the more we want to say that, um, that the filmmaker uh, must have, must have gone through those same things. Um, Because I, you know, I don't think we'd be having this conversation about Hitchcock thinking, well, but he never killed anybody. I don't understand how he could have known so <laughs> yeah. so clearly what it's like to kill somebody. And I he that's just what you thought think. about it a yeah. lot. <laughs> well, and I think probably Ozu thought about thought about marriage a lot, and I think yes, and thought and did. thought about um, thought about women a lot too. Um, and you know, in the same, I mean, uh, I think Bergman obviously had a lot of autobiographical elements in his films, um, but you know, was a sort of uh, you know, notorious womanizer, um, and, uh, and yet was able to write these, you know, beautiful female characters. Um, oh, I think he was a womanizer because he knew how to right. get into a woman's psyche. I mean, he, he, he was a successful seducer, if you right. will. And, and, and the women felt very willing to enter into that level of relationship with him because he got them in a certain sure sense. but i think you know on the on the other hand there's there's many there are many both directors and musicians and artists who were womenizers who mostly focused on male genres or on um yeah. you know masculinity um so i think you know there's there's definitely something uh, of value in every artist's life uh, that will give you insight into the work that they produced but i think it only goes um, so far to a certain degree. Um, and especially with somebody like Ozu who made a film a year, um, at, at this point at least. Um, and really, uh, from, from the beginning of his life, loved movies and all he wanted to do was make movies. Um, you know, his, his viewpoint on these things and his experiences about these things are in his films. And I, I think, uh, uh, you know, that's where mo- the most insight into the man comes from. 
Well, and one thing, too, I, I think it's always amazing when a filmmaker like Ozu breaks through their biography. I mean, you, you bring up Hitchcock, but Hitchcock was mostly, you know, he, he would inject his biography into ready-made projects that, that he was attracted to. And, you know, I don't want to dismiss him. I love him. But there's a little bit more of a, of a genre going to work there. Um, but I, I'm thinking also of someone like Fassbender, who wrote who wrote and directed his own films, kind of like Ozu was a part of writing these, and seems to be so different from the person that he is, that he was notorious for being in life. You know, he seemed to have a very rich, burn-through-it-all kind of life, and, you know, different from Ozu for sure, but Ozu himself, kind of, with his drinking and, 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 all, uh, and all of his productivity, just... They, they both seem to kind of be able to, to get away from themselves. And Fassbender in particular, who could be so cruel, can also, in his personal life, can also write these incredibly um, empathetic and sympathetic uh, stories that seem to be from the perspective of the very people he's being cruel to in his own life. And he seems to understand their point of view and their pain. And... And it's. I think it's always amazing when you get a, an, an an auteur who who's a part of the creative creation of the story as well, who seems to get around themselves, who seems to see it from a different perspective. Like Bergman uh, might be able to. It, it doesn't link to their personal life. They they certainly had different attitudes or different uh, different um, failings, and they used. You know, I guess. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where there are so many. Life is too complicated sometimes to fully reduce anybody to one thing, and it seems like Ozu is is being is able to do that with this particular film. You know, at least from my perspective, that the the characters. It's difficult to say exactly all that's going on in their head. It's just a beautiful and enriching exploration of of all of these things that that could be out there, and. Uh, you know, I, I just love how he and, you know, some of the others that we've talked about didn't have to experience it, didn't have to filter it through personal experience. They were they were smart enough to to understand all those other things, even if it didn't link up completely with the way they they lived their lives. Yeah. So. So where do you think we're at? I mean, do you think we are close to wrapping up our thoughts on this film? I mean, I just I think about other pieces. You know, you've got the little kid humor bits. You've got you've got so many different. There's a lot. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 we see a lot of that in the in the next movie. So I'm kind of wondering if we want to wrap up our thoughts on late autumn and move over to the end of summer. Um, well, I don't think we'll ever exhaust everything that we could talk about with these. So. Seems a good time to transition over. Yeah, I'm I'm good. Okay, <laughs> okay. So let's uh, let's refill the sake cup <laughs> and talk about uh, the end of summer, which uh, yeah is a very interesting film because uh, you know as I've already said, this is his second to the last film. It was a Toho production, uh, not a Shochiku, and one of I guess only three films that Ozu made outside of the Shochiku uh, umbrella. And we talked about one of them last time, uh, Floating Weeds, which was uh, kind of a quickly made uh, one-off remake of a story of Floating Weeds. Uh, probably, maybe, well, I think almost certainly the most clearly obvious remake of any film that Ozu. Uh, did in his career where you know he he appropriated the actual title of the earlier film into the later one 
and uh, and there are some similarities now with floating weeds was with the day i studio this is with toho i don't know enough of all the details of what where this opening came from but it, well so in, re- to, in uh, the reason he made this film for toho was mm-hmm. because um they lent uh, both Setsuko Hara and um, the daughter. I, for, I forget her name. Um, they were under contract with Toho, and and they they lent uh, them to Ozu for late autumn. Okay. And so this film was made in exchange for that one. So so had Setsuko Hara signed a new deal with Toho, or yes. or I mean, yeah. okay, that was interesting because you know I don't know if she ever went on to fulfill her responsibilities, or maybe it was a, sh- a relatively short term deal, but kind of what a coup you know what for toho i mean they must have been feeling pretty aggressive or competitive with shochiku to to pry away setsuko hara and of course they got ozu to come running (laughs) and said okay let's make a deal here but you know i really really love this film i mean it's hard for me to say this is my favorite film of the box but this is the one i think from when i first watched it until i rewatched it again it's just it left me just so breathless and so stunned and just so in awe of everything Ozu accomplished at this stage of his of his uh, of his life and his career. I think you know, in the previous episode I said at this stage I consider Ozu unassailable. I mean, I'm not going to criticize him. I'm just going to sit back and and learn and understand and <laughs> and soak it in. And and that's very much the feeling I got coming out of this film. And yet, when I read some of the critical literature and the reviews, this is somehow considered, you know, lesser Ozu or minor, or kind of a side project. And I, I don't think it had to do simply with the studio that he produced it for. I mean, uh, that's kind of a weird little, you know, trivia or anecdote. But I don't know. I mean, this this film is just completely. Um, it's it's like an encyclopedia of so much of what Ozu did. Uh, uh, you know, in these years, and it's just got so many elements that I find um, so so fascinating, so satisfying, so compelling, and and again, watching it right after we watched you know Floating Weeds a couple weeks ago, where we've got that same impish uh, kind of male figure <laughs> at the center of it, and and everybody else, you know, uh, Satsuko Hara in her role, Chishurio's little cameo at the end. I mean, I could probably rush through this this my, my take on this film with this kind of this blaze of enthusiasm uh, and I, I do want to kind of slow the pace down and, and analyze it a bit more but I, I just really <laughs> I just really love this movie because it, it it does seem as such a a capstone I mean if this indeed had been Ozu's final film the way it ends and the way it kind of summarizes so many other of his themes um it would still be as sad as it is that we didn't have any more after an autumn afternoon. And yet it just seems like such a, you know, such a comprehensive sort of statement of so much of what I love about Ozu. So, you know, that's my first kind of, uh, outburst of, of praise for this film. Uh, who wants to follow up on that? Well, well, let me, let me just quickly lodge my, uh, uh, much more uninformed, uh, much more, you know, just, just budding, um, feelings about the film that I'm excited to learn from you, David, because I guess I'm more along the lines of the others, uh, that they're those who critique the film, not in a sense that I, I find it like weak or, or awful or anything like that. There's so much in here that I loved in its pieces from the opening scene with the, 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 
that little setup there. Um, we'll get into that here in a second. This is more just my general take to the scenes with um, Setsukahara and Yoko Tsukasa uh, as as their um, you know their relationship and, and their scenes together. I, I did like um, Ganjiro Nakamura's uh, Manbei and his kind of uh, playfulness, and and it definitely helped that I'd just seen floating weeds and could kind of see a lot more to his character just from that. Um, but I didn't ever feel like all of the pieces melded together, and I I, pr- I promise you I see that more as my own failing at this point than the films. Um, and so that's why I mean I'm, I'm very anxious to kind of capture the enthusiasm you have for this one because I did love so many of its pieces and probably every single one of its pieces, but I can't wrap my head around them yet. I can't, I can't quite bring them together in a way that I, I feel I've been able to understand um, a cohesive whole, even if it's open and porous and and you know open to ambiguity of all of the other films this one felt a little bit more episodic and um the pieces more discreet and and uh, disconnected while while certainly there's a plot line that runs through it and the characters have their relationships um i i couldn't quite uh, bring it all together in a way that that satisfied me and and like i say i want i want it to be known that certainly at this point, I consider that I failed myself. <laughs> I'm oh. dissatisfied with myself, not with the film. <laughs> well, and, don't don't take it so hard, you know. I mean, well, no, but I just want I just want my my openness to become apparent. You that should probably I, I don't leave want to now, come down. Trevor. <laughs> I don't want to come down. <laughs> this is the last we'll hear of Trevor on this series. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, I'll just mute myself now. You guys carry it on. Goodbye, listeners. No, <laughs> no. Like I say, very, very interested in, in hearing it because I, I, I did love so much about it, and I know I knew from reading your your journey through the Eclipse column that you did too. In fact, I found some of your thoughts there very, very eloquent and touching, um, to to the point where they they really did make me kind of revisit not just my thoughts on the film but but some of my own thoughts on my life i mean just just to not not to to get all all sappy or anything but you have a moment in your review where you do talk about the sublime beauty of this passage of time and i've never seen it that way i kind of hate time i kind of you know i'm i i, I get mad at it i get upset when i see time passing and your thoughts in your column definitely helped me start to see the beauty of it. And I, I promise you, it was one of the first times I've really kind of been struck with, with that in a, in a more personal way. And that was after I'd seen the film. So I need to revisit it with that in mind. And maybe that's what I'm missing. But that that really, you know, like I say, there there's a lot to your column. And I, I could tell it was a great um, uh, personal reaction from you. So again, very open to to um, succumbing to the power of this film. Well, just stepping back somewhat philosophically, I mean, time is a beast. You know, time is a devourer of, of who we are, of who we love, of what we do. And yet, you know, the alternative would be the endless static. I mean, time is what creates variety and motion and... And the beauty of it is is in its ephemerality, is that, you know, this moment is exceptional or is, uh, you know, uh, awe-inspiring because it is passing, it is transitioning into something else. And that's really, I guess, 
you know, there are so many, you know, mundane moments and, and so many, you know, uh, human interactions. I mean, starting from the beginning scene where they stage a little pickup escapade with the Setsuko Hara, you know, that the two men, these two kind of clownish characters and, and just their faces. I mean, you might as well have Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis out there <laughs> kind of mugging for the camera, you know, you can tell this is just going to turn into a farce any, any second now, but you know, they're still going to try to, you know, make, make a move on this, uh, this epitome of Japanese womanhood, this this eternal virgin Setsuko Hara, which you know in Ozu's films we never see her really possessed. You know, we never see her owned by a man. She's always this kind of on a pedestal, somewhat untouchable, and yet still very warm and human. She's not an ice princess or anything like that, uh, but she's just not quite attainable in the way that. <laughs> you know makes her all the more desirable right so so to get back to my theme on on time it's just you know ozu is just bringing us right into these moments and i guess i guess it's just that i've you know by this point in watching the set and watching his films i've kind of accompanied him on this journey and it's like i'm just just so deeply moved by his ability to just create this succession of moments on screen that that summon all these deeper thoughts and this kind of sense of awareness that yeah you know life is flying by and what what we cling to what we cherish and revere into this moment today uh it's it's about to become a memory and and we just got to get ready for the next one and hope that there's more good memories and, and good sensations awaiting us until we finally reach that ending point and then we see what what lies next <laughs> so, so matt yeah give us give us your take now that we've kind of opened up cosmic vistas here <laughs> what do you think about the uh, end of summer well i think this is one of ozu's most complex films and i i say that um for better and for worse um obviously there just, is so much going on absolutely yeah i mean obviously just from a from a character and plot perspective um i i think he he cast every person working for toho in this movie <laughs> uh, it's a complete time. grab bag of his of his late phase you know stars and characters and so many people we haven't seen before because they were they were uh you know working for toho and 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 the, you know on top of that so many sets and a feeling that we haven't seen before. And part of that is getting out of Tokyo. But I think, you know, that opening shot of the neon is uh, so surprising. New Japan. Yeah, yeah, with New Japan. I mean, it feels so different from uh, anything that we've experienced in his movies before uh, and feels so modern. And you go into this bar that just looks like it's right out of Mad Men. Um, And even though he he had made a movie just a year previously... Um, that was set in contemporary times, like all, almost all of his movies. Um, there's, uh, there's still this feeling that you are in a different world and, and a more modern world than his other movies. There's something very anachronistic about, um, his films of the fifties and early sixties. Um, and this doesn't feel that way to me. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think, uh, I think where, where it becomes even more complex is in the depiction of time as you, as you're talking about, you know, the, the way you frame it, I think is absolutely correct, 
but at the same time, it sounds very grandiose in that description. And it sounds like this big moment that happens where you realize that time is, is mark time marches on. Uh, and there is, there's none of that in this movie. It's actually a, a fairly light and insignificant movie until, uh, in terms of what happens in it until the end. And it's, it's a domestic drama of little squabbles and yeah, he almost tensions between. Yeah. And the dad almost feels like a, um, like a, a recurring character in a silent serial that we've never seen before. You know, he's just like the, the kooky old uh, patriarch that's getting into trouble again. Uh, that and I think he's patriarch. playing off a character he's portrayed in previous movies. I mean, he was in, uh, certainly he was in floating weeds, but I think he was kind of a, a comic actor. Yeah. Maybe almost like a Will Ferrell type. Like whenever Will Ferrell shows up, you just sort of know he's got that sort of thing going on. And this is kind of the same thing here. He's just kind of got that mischievous, impish look in his eye. And oh, you just know he's a little bit of a scoundrel, but we love him for it anyways. And <laughs> and he's just going to, he's just going to fulfill that expectation as he goes about his little business sneaking around to see his old lover there. Right, right. And it, and it feels so, so kind of silly and, uh, and, um, throw away the, the little things that he does, you know, going, going to the bike bicycle races. And, I, and just as an aside, I, I love the, the way they early in the movie, they say, well, at least he's not going to the bicycle races. He's just going to his mistress. <laughs> and then he takes his and mistress to a bicycle race, uh, gambles it away. Yeah. And, 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 and I, I think also that character as he is kind of recognizing again, maybe on that same subliminal level that Ozu did that, you know, the end isn't that far away. And again, Ozu was only what, 58, 59, you know, years old when he was making this film. So a reasonable person might say, you know, I've got another 10, 15 years or so if all goes well, but at the same time, you know, you, you hit 60 and you just never know what, what lies in store. And especially with all his drinking and, and all of that, he probably didn't, you know, have the healthiest internal thing going on there. But, but you know, the, the, the father here is he's just going for the gusto or whatever he thinks he can handle while the getting is still good. And, uh, and yeah, that, that I guess maybe speaks to me as well, just kind of watching this as a, I'm coming up on my 56th birthday next month. And so, yeah, it's like, yeah, this is kind of communicating something to me here. Well, in the comedy of his, uh, of his, uh, sort of, uh, acting out or, or advent misadventures, um, again, really becomes, uh, sort of a juxtaposition with the larger theme of the, of the movie. And, and again, this is where Ozu get, takes the personal and makes it, um, societal and that this is the, the death of a, uh, quote unquote, Japanese family, you know, the, uh, with the, with a capital F, the, the big sprawling family, wealthy family, respected of a sake company. Um, and, uh, this doesn't end with, um, you know, these are, this is not a, um, uh, an, a Russian epic novel where, you know, the grand things happen to t- tear down the fam, uh, you know, the, the, the vault, the vaunted family. This is, uh, a gradual whimper of a of an ending to this uh, generations long tradition that this family had, and yeah. that that's really that was really what was happening in Japan at the time. Um, you know, after the after the war, you're you're talking about 
the, the large portion of the population working in family businesses. And all of a sudden, here we are in this in the beginning of the 60s, and people go to work like they did in, in early spring, um, and work for a big corporation. And the, the, the way that you know, all of these small socket companies are getting bought up by larger companies, um, obviously, is something that that we've had to deal with in America over the last um, 20 to 30 years. And that that's really, um, you know, what is reflected in th- these kind of insignificant concerns uh, on a, on a day to day level of what 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 the father is going off to do, or you know, which which uh, daughter is going to get married. Um, the, this is the end of of this deep set tradition in Japan, and one of the kind of core elements of their society for hundreds, uh, if, you know, if not uh, th- a thousand years. And here we right. are, um, just kind of, uh, letting it all kind of, uh, you know, evaporate away into the air. Um, right. Do we, do they even recognize the gravity or the significance right. of what's going on? I mean, it's embedded in the title of this film, which I think literally is autumn for the Koyahayagawa right. family. And it is, it's, it's like, this is the beginning of the end. And so, yeah. So dad, yeah, he, he can kind of romp and run around and be the playboy and live it up until he dies. Cause that's all he has to do is he basically just has to get an old and die. But <laughs> it's these kids who have to figure out what we're going to do after that, you know, after dad's gone. And that's kind of the, the angst of this film is like, you know, yeah, he can be the comic, uh, even slightly buffoonish character. Although there is a, you know, there's a poignancy to his, his, late life and, and eventual passing, but everybody else who gets left behind really has to kind of clean up the mess and figure out what's next for them. Yeah. And a lot of people have said that that ending is, you know, heavy handed, but I think it, it's, it's almost Ozu's final joke, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can take it at its face value literally, or you can say, you know, he's just kind of serving it up to you because he's Ozu and he can do that. Well, and he's also reminding you that what came before was more similar to what you're seeing, uh, you know, the crows on the graves, um, then you, you might have noticed as you were watching it. I mean, this is the end of something. This is the death of, of this family. And it's all, you know, it's all fun and games. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, eventually, uh, it's all going to be gone and you're not going to have realized it while it was happening that, uh, and I, I think that makes this one of Ozu's darkest movies, um, because it, it, it really, it really does kind of dawn on you at the end that like, this is really the end of, of this world that we've just been living in. The, the, the darkness and, 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 and you're right. I, someone on, on Facebook mentioned, and I can't remember who it was. I'd love to give him credit that when you watch an Ozu movie, you you don't feel like you just kind of get to know characters. You almost feel like you become part of a family. You get, you know, you're part of this society of, of people that you, you come to love and know and, and see their weaknesses and their strengths. And there, there, there is an end. I mean, you've got the, the third generation, you know, you've got the, the grandchildren um, there as well. Um, but fortunately for me, all, all of that was lightened quite substantially, and even the heavy-handedness of the ending by Chishirio's cameo as the farmer just observing, just someone on the outside living his life, 
very peacefully with his with his wife by his side, uh, reflecting on this passage. You know, uh, there's there's something there's a nice bit of distance built into the end of the film there that made it not quite so heavy and not quite so dark for me. Though I acknowledge both of those, I think are are, are truly there. Um, thanks to just this brief little moment where Chishirio and his wife are talking about all the crows and, oh, someone may have died today. Well, but no, there's no smoke coming out of the crematorium. And then the, you know, the smoke starts to come out and just their own, their own little reflections right there. It does, it does kind of push me back. And that's where I think I see some of the beauty that David's talking about in his column. Well, yeah. And of course he says, well, as somebody died, you know, as older people die there's a newer generation to take their place so again just kind of under maybe maybe too on the nose but definitely underscoring that sort of ozu theme of change yeah and i don't know i guess you can you can you know make the point that it's too on the nose but you know i mean traditional japanese theater the you know the null and the kabuki i mean they're pretty on the nose they they kind of lay their themes and ideas out there pretty point blank and i think ozu's really hearkening back to that and it's like why not i mean you know he's you know you you cannot fault ozu for not being subtle enough <laughs> you know i mean he's got subtleties and insights and depths of nuance that are are sprinkled generously through all of his films where you go back for the third or fourth viewing and it's like oh yeah you know i never quite picked up on that before but you know i don't i don't mind him just sort of laying it right out there when you're talking about themes of of life and death and uh and i think bringing chishu ryu into that particular scene does kind of round out the picture just like you know you you sort of have ozu's uh late career all-stars i mean you you had to have a spot to fit chishu ryu in and and i I, what i like about that scene what his contribution is that he sort of makes makes the whole thing anonymous to a certain degree that yeah we're into this family saga and all the drama and the poignancy surrounding the the passing of the generations but at a, from a different sort of drawn back perspective, this is just one more guy who's died and somebody kind of in the social landscape is like, Oh, there goes another one, you know, right. and life goes on. I, I think that's, that's a pretty good reminder as well that to not get overly wrapped up in this individual saga, because this is, this is part of a much larger context where, you know, people are coming and going all the time and we are all just microscopic bit players uh, even those people who like Ozu himself are famous characters of world culture he's just one man who made his tofu movies and then he vanished from the scene and <laughs> and we're left to carry on and reflect about the meaning of it all from there well one thing too though i mean i i i think that having that character on the nose and having that distance built in is valuable for all of those reasons but it's also kind of does the reverse it reminds us that we were within that family that it's kind of like hamlet where you know talking about grief is something that's just universal and yet when you're going through it it is incredibly particular it's it's very personal and individual and it's not universal. I mean, it's 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 all on you, 
And I think that the film kind of is, you know, I don't I don't know if this is deliberate or not, but it works that way a little bit for me. You've got that distance built in that lightens it up, but you can immediately walk right back into these characters and realize just how personal this is. And not just the, the, the patriarch's death, but their own lives and where they go from here. I mean, each of them are trying to figure out not just what to do with the company, but what am I going to do with my remaining time? You've got the youngest daughter who... Um, you know, what, what's she going to do? She's not married yet. And a part of the plot line is getting her married off and also getting um, Setsuko Hara's character, you know, who's the widowed daughter-in-law, getting her married off again. And what are they going to do with their remaining time? Their relationship is something that I loved about the film in particular, because it is about, well, time is passing. We, we don't have forever to make these decisions, but but we have a life before us, and we'd kind of like to have a little bit of control over it and take it on our terms. And, and we're going to recuse ourselves if it's something that's forced upon us. And, and so I do think that the film kind of plays a little bit in, in both camps, where you do get the general broad world view of, of here's one individual, the, the circle of life, you know, this is just how it is, passing it on from generation to generation. But we zoom right into to these two women and to this family, but in particular these two women who have both sides still left to them, a past and a future, and, and these intimate little mundane um, day-by-day decisions that they have to make as they as they try to navigate this whole thing and these transitions in their own life. I um, you know, I guess I'm talking myself into appreciating the film more than I did when I came into the discussion, um, <laughs> but, which is a good thing. So nice to see some traditions continuing on. <laughs> I would hate to end this the Eclipse viewer without at least one more of those. <laughs> well, even if you say that this movie is, you know, if you if you want to compare them to the other films in the box, um, is better or worse uh, than than those films, I think it's clear that there's still so, you know so much going on under the surface of this film this is still ozu kind of at the top of his game even if he's trying out different things and and that is kind of the way that i look at this movie um similar to tokyo twilight in that it, it, there's so many different things here whether it's technical or thematic that he's playing with um and i think some of them I, I really, I really love and others, I kind of feel like, uh, that's maybe not playing Ozu's strengths. Um, you know, I think the, the music in this is, is a good example of that, but I think ultimately, uh, that's what makes this and Tokyo Twilight so fascinating because you can go back and you can see the, the beautiful things that he's trying that are new here, um, in one viewing and you can see in another viewing the things that feel creakier than they might in a film like late autumn or equinox flower because he's trying things that um you know are are kind of out of his wheelhouse and i think the the sort of broad complicated story here is one of those things um and i think also that there's a lot of sort of vignettes and asides in this movie there's scenes in this film there's never any scene in in uh the typical ozu movie where you say that scene did not need to be in this movie. And I feel like there maybe are a few of those in this film. I mean, I think he, he, he never has a scene and then ignores it for the rest of the film. Um, he, he always has it sort of build on, on other elements, but I still think some of the, uh, 
interactions that the father has, um, you know, the, the, the whole encounter with his daughter where he, where his, his daughter knows that he's bluffing, um, and tries to get him to get dressed and go back to see the, the, uh, the associate that he is tr- trying to do business with. Um, it's a great scene. And, uh, and he, Ozu uses it as a running joke throughout where the, the woman keeps asking, uh, her father, if, if he's ever going to see the guy that, uh, <laughs> that he had been meeting with. Um, but it, it's not really like part necessarily part of the, you, you could take it out of the movie and, and you would still have, that development of character with, with the daughter and the father. Um, and I think it's just, uh, you know, it adds richness, but at the same time, I think there's very few other Ozu movies where you could say that about any particular scene. They're usually driving the characters forward in some Mm -hmm. regard. Yeah, you're, you're right. There's, there's a lots of little random bits. And I think that's one of the other things I just appreciate is just the variety. And you'd already talked about the bicycle races and I, I like it when Ozu gets outdoors and gets into the kind of the larger social world, uh, you know, whether it's streetscapes and, and what's happening in the cities and, and, uh, what people are doing as far as recreational time. Uh, there's some scenes and some art galleries here and just, you know, it's just kind of nice to sort of see his camera venture out outside of the strictly defined, you know, domestic spaces or, you know, uh, office areas. Uh, and so, so it is, it is, it's, this is a, this is a hodgepodge of a film, but I think, I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about it. It feels like he's, he's, uh, he's exploring, he's, he's feeling somewhat liberated to, to try some stuff and whether or not it works, I just, I guess maybe I just appreciate the, the variety of it, uh, as much as anything else. Yeah, that's fair. I, I definitely um, can see those aspects of the movie as its strengths to a certain degree, um, just because obviously that level of um, skill and, and attention to detail remains in the even even in those moments that are not uh, necessarily essential to to the overall story. Yeah. So I don't know other thoughts that you want to get into on this. I mean, I, I think again, I've kind of just gushed with enthusiasm for it, and uh, you know, I wrote my review some years ago, and and uh, you know, it is it's interesting. You know, just again, you've got you know the themes of the 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 ambiguity of whether or not this father, you know, with the with the fourth daughter, if you will, or the fourth, you know, who. Who, the one who's always pestering him for that mink stole and just again other little comic throwaway bits and and how he's just pulling favorite uh you know favorite scenarios from his you know previous films and you know he's just kind of giving him a little half twist and 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 having some fun with it i i just you know really just sit back and and enjoy uh watching his his riffs and his variations um you know just as he's you know, kind of, kind of giving himself the freedom to to try new things and to uh, you know, bring his audience on a little bit of a journey. I'm curious what you thought of the music in the film, David. Uh, yeah, um, I probably didn't give it as close of a listen. I mean, I, I think I understand your point. That seems a little bit. Uh, I don't know. It kind of jumps from feel. Uh, from one one scene to another maybe maybe it's not as consistent or as doesn't have that same kind of 
rhythmic flow that you get with the Shochiku films. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, well just to let you know, I, I, I noticed it because the the opening of Late Autumn with the music was so beautiful that I thought, oh, I'm going to put that into the podcast. I'll use those transitions. And then we get to to this one, and I think, well, maybe not. I don't really want to play any of this music. <laughs> I didn't really enjoy it, you know. Didn't quite have the same depth to it, I guess. I mean, it's well, it's so different from the traditional Ozu music, and um, which has a little bit more of that lyrical sweepiness to it, and kind of buoys you along, you know. That the kind of rollicking is probably too, I don't know, too forceful of a word, but but it is. It's just kind of it just kind of you bob along with it, and and here you don't get that same feeling. Then yeah, well, it also uh, it almost feels more kind of like Hollywood. Uh, to me and there is a little bit in the comedic moments as well of the kind of mickey mousing um Mm -hmm. you know accentuating the 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 gags um did you get that feeling from the music in good morning i mean that 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 did stick out to me i didn't really comment on that last episode but good morning had a little bit of that kind of sitcom type of thing yeah 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 well i yeah but that sort of fit with with the juvenile when i think sonically that still was of a piece with the other films Mm -hmm. whereas you know i mean and i i don't really have a huge problem with the music in this movie but i i always notice it just because it's so different than uh his other films uh the only thing i would say is that i am really not crazy about the the final music uh over the gravestones it just it's so kind of melodramatic and uh you know, it, it feels very, it feels very Hollywood to me. Uh, and that kind of, uh, you know, uh, I think it under, it undermines the, the kind of, uh, conflicted poignancy of the shots that we're seeing, um, by, by right. sort of forcing it into one pigeonhole. We'll, we'll, we'll play some now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You give us some examples. Yeah. What about the, the, the core story, the anecdote that this film was based on about a man who suffered cardiac arrest, was revived, and then got up the next morning? This is a story that Ozu had, uh, some acquaintance had related this to him. I think it was a woman that he knew. Maybe it was her father or somebody else close to her who had actually gone through that experience where, where it looked like he might not make it and uh, then got up the next morning and everything was just hunky-dory. He had this kind of new lease on life only to you know pass on not too long after that. Uh, I guess it's an interesting uh, germ of an idea uh, that that led to the, you know, you know, the kind of the further elaboration of this film. Uh, I don't know, any thoughts on just kind of that that central story there? Well, it's amazing he came up with this whole movie out of that one anecdote. Um, yeah, yeah. It's probably not the direction that the vast majority of filmmakers would go with that uh, with that brief, uh, you know, aside. Basically, um, I mean the right. scene the scene yeah. where they're waiting for him, uh, you know, and then he he kind of just uh, uh, saunters out of his room. Um, definitely reminded me of Tokyo story just in terms of like, well, you know, this has been great everybody, but uh, I really got to get back to um, my own life here. Um, And, you know, just again, kind of uh, reminds you that these people are not realizing the full 
kind of gravity of, of what's happening uh, to their family and to the, you know, the people around them. Right. These, these little hints of mortality are reminders that in a certain sense, we're all kind of, if not on borrowed time, we're certainly on, we're all living on dwindling time. And so, you know, what, what are we doing with our days and how are we spending it? And, and, uh, you know, he, he never waxes sentimental. He never sits, you know, hug the people you love, (laughs) you know, but, but there's the implication that, you know, uh, we, we should not take these opportunities for life and for living completely for granted. And that, uh, the distractions and the tensions and the bickerings, uh, while they may be sometimes necessary to get certain things done or push uh, unresolved things toward resolution, um, we we might want to be as efficient about that business as we can to just enjoy the simplicity of the simple pleasures of, of what lies before us, what opportunities we do have to, uh, you know, appreciate and 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 savor what what life does have to offer so any final thoughts on the uh, end of summer or are we close to the end of this podcast oh the one thing i did want to mention uh we didn't discuss on uh either of these movies is that the sound mixing is is very complex uh Hmm. and really made a jump up i think from uh the previous films uh especially on end of summer there's a lot going on in the background, um, and sort of, um, like ambient sounds. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely something to, to look out for, uh, on hmm. rewatches. Well, it, you're, you're going to have to make me rewatch these movies. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be, no, because yeah, I, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they, they just didn't, they didn't make the same impression on me. I'm not saying they're not there, but it does kind of stoke my curiosity to kind of just pay a little bit more attention to some of those sonic elements that you're pointing out here. Yeah. Any other thoughts along that line uh, or anything that stood out to you, Trevor? No, I, I didn't, uh, I, I hope it affected me, but it wasn't something that I consciously registered. So yeah. I, 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 I'm yeah. with you. I mean, I'll, I'll be revisiting these uh, fairly soon anyway, just because yeah. it's all, I, I need to get the benefit of these conversations uh, in a rewatch. So yeah. I will be doing that and I'll pay attention to that. Is that this uh, kind of new recording technology, kind of a, an advancement that Ozu didn't really have available to him in the past, Matt? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't really that? stumbled on much writing about it, um, but that would be my assumption, um, just that he's able to kind of incorporate a little bit more of that um, into into his films. Um, I think these two films in particular, even though, uh, you know, they're not, uh, necessarily my favorite in the set. Um, I love both of them. Um, but I think that they really reward rewatches, um, because they are so complex and there's so much of Ozu playing with, like I said, playing with the, um, the expectations of his compositions and editing that, um, late autumn in particular is, is it can it can reveal new surprises to you the more you kind of watch it and pay attention to what's going on um oh and the other thing i wanted to mention is that uh i watched both equinox flower and late autumn on uh some really stunning uh japanese blu-rays um, oh yeah that um they they did a four uh four bio color for ozu um box that was a um restoration 
work that, and I, I think it, that both of the restorations of um, an autumn afternoon and uh, good morning come from uh, that work that uh, Shochiku did. Um, mm. And so uh, I, I do recommend for people who love those movies um, getting uh, getting those two editions uh, because they are uh, really beautiful. And I, I, I think probably uh, the complexity of the sound design in late autumn definitely um, I, I noticed it more this time uh, by watching it on with yeah, uh, well, you know, compressed audio. With, with, with Good Morning, of course, the, the need for an upgrade was just notorious right. and, and you know outrageously overdue these eclipse dvds really don't look that bad at all in fact i'm I, you know I, I i'm very satisfied but i do wonder what extra enhancements the 4k or, or the hd at least the restoration would have and i i am very curious to to investigate that myself um like i say these are pretty good transfers on, yeah. at the dvd uh on my 55 inch UHD monitor. I, I don't have any real complaints, but uh, yeah, that that's intriguing. And and this does seem like a set that I would really love Criterion to consider reissuing in a Blu-ray format. Yeah, the um, the moving to end of summer after late autumn uh, was definitely noticeable. Um, you know, I, I think not having seen the blu-ray in the past that the dvds are very very solid and still worth picking up um but yeah i mean it, it's it it's a real revelation to see those uh those hd um restorations because they're really beautiful the other the other kind of bit of ozu news that um i i received thanks to uh, patrick albion a uh, friend online um who is also an ozu fanatic is that somebody uh, just tweeted out that they uh, had the pleasure of subbing the 4K restoration of Flavor of Green Tea over rice recently. So uh, yes. hopefully yeah. that I watched, will uh, be coming yeah. soon. Yeah, I watched that on Filmstruck uh, about a month or so ago and really loved that. That That's a really yeah. beautiful film and, and one that uh, you know, Criterion, of course, has not released on disc to date, but it would be a very worthy standalone uh, Blu-ray edition, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah, it's one of my yep. favorite Ozu's, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess maybe it's it's also fitting just to sort of remark that th these are the last collaborations between Ozu and Setsuko Hara. She did not appear in an autumn afternoon. Um, and I don't know, any, any kind of final thoughts on the pairing of these two sort of legends of Japanese cinema? I know, uh, you know, uh, we didn't really comment on the ending itself of um, of late autumn, but that was a very very profound scene a very very touching moment of just Satsuko Hara kind of recapitulating and not you know she's not peeling an apple but she is kind of that you know forlorn presence um, sort of staring off into her isolated solitary space at the end of late autumn and and you know it's not quite as uh, you know, she's not quite the focal point here at the end of uh, at the end of summer, but uh, but she is kind of right there. And I don't know, just just the collaboration. I think what Ozu and Sasako made what six films together, but they are of such you know towering significance in Ozu's uh, canon and films, and just such wonderful uh, creations in and of their own right. I don't know any any thoughts you might have, Matt or Trevor, about. You know, just that pairing, and and uh, of course, Setsuko eventually um, retiring soon after. I think she did maybe another movie or two outside of her work with Ozu afterwards. But 
when he died, it's like her whole willingness to continue making films seems to have, um, you know, withered along with his passing. So I don't know, just it, it, she's just a remarkable character and and their collaboration is, is one of the most, uh, you know, uh, thought provoking and, 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 and beautiful in in my opinion. I I think you probably feel the same way, Matt, but, uh, yeah, just kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's something to stop and, and, and reflect on for a moment or at least acknowledge the significance of it. Yeah, there's not much that I can say without just, you know, becoming a gushing fanboy. Um, <laughs> uh, th- those six films are are real treasures, and I think um, she uh, the ending of Late Autumn is a really great example of her ability to uh, the reason why uh, the clear a clear example of why Ozu loved working with her so much she is she gets his ambiguity you know he she understands the ability to convey multiple emotions in one look and it's it it, i could see a hundred different people watching that final sequence with her um and getting a hundred different reads on how she's feeling in those moments and how she's thinking about her daughter um but they all carry such an emotional weight and and so much life experience behind them um that i think uh as much as i like many of her performances in other uh directors films um she was really able to to use her uh, ability to convey emotion through just simple body language and facial expressions um within Ozu's world, uh, in just a very unique way, um, that I, I think it's very difficult to think of anybody else who has had that kind of a relationship, uh, with a director. Yeah. Yeah. I can't speak to their personal friendship, but it does seem like they're soulmates of a sort, you know, and, uh, yeah, I'm, we're, we're all the richer because we have access to this, uh, this partnership, this artistic uh, collaboration that took place all those years ago. Well, David, in the show notes, you might want to link to Criterion's essay, Ozu and Setsukahara by Donald Ritchie. Excellent. Um, Yeah, I I will. Thanks for the suggestion. Yeah, they posted it. I I remember seeing it for the first time uh, upon her death, but it's an older essay that Donald Ritchie wrote for late spring, but it goes into, um, into their relationship and their collaboration quite nicely. Very good. That's a, a wonderful recommendation. And so maybe that's just a good note to kind of officially wrap up our conversation on these last two films. And maybe we'll just indulge for a, a few moments anyways about uh, the, the closeout of the Eclipse Viewer podcast. I've kind of already opened up with some thoughts of gratitude towards Trevor and, and uh, the fact that we were able to kind of pull this thing from the ashes and actually complete the project. There's 44 volumes of Eclipse uh, series discs that have been uh, the subject of conversation over the, (laughs) well, they're not innumerable hours, but they're quite a few hours. I haven't even close to take the the time to figure out how many hours (laughs) of, uh, of chatter we've, uh, we've uh, registered over, over the Mm -hmm. past uh, five years or so. But uh, I just want to say to listeners, I've really appreciated the, opportunity to delve into these films and to perhaps uh, stimulate your curiosity and of course the feedback i've gotten from many of you 
uh, online and in other ways over the years has just been really uh, a real a real joy for me. Uh, again, Trevor, yeah, you know, thank you for uh, you know help, you know being there along with me uh, for all these times for all the guests that we've had. Uh, it's just been a real uh, real wonderful uh, experience hearing your insights. I think about people like you know Scott, our very first guest, who's been with us for a couple episodes. Pablo, the the Japanese genre enthusiast, uh, Lauren, going back some years to the Lubitsch musicals when Trevor and I were just kind of getting our groove on, and uh, Keith, of course, the epic, uh, uh, you know, the, oh gosh, what's his name? Louis oh, Mal documentaries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I probably should have just read a roster of all the guests. I don't want to, you know. You know slight anybody by not mentioning him by name but i don't have them all recollected and i don't have a list in front of me but you should have just all had him on this podcast to say hello. yeah you know we we (laughs) we tried to make some arrangements but uh you know early saturday mornings just don't work for everybody i don't know uh trevor you got any thoughts you want to add just as far as uh little words of benediction as we wrap this thing up well thanks to you too david because i you know, reached out to you because I already knew how good it was to listen to your uh, podcast. I was already I- involved and and uh, along for the ride in in listening to you. And when you guys went silent for about a year, I you know read some tea leaves and some tweets and stuff that you know he didn't know if you'd bring it back and that 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 um, Rob had kind of uh, had other things going on. So I just reached out to you mostly to see if there was a way that I could help out. (laughs) And I think I even told you, look, you don't have to have me as a co-host. And if it works for a couple of episodes and you find that, you know, you get the groove on and and Rob jumps back in, please, you know, I I will exit uh, grateful for the opportunity. So I'm glad that it's worked out this way um, because it's been, it's been a lot of fun. You know, we've, we've, We've met up on these Saturday mornings pretty much once or twice or sometimes even three times a month over the past uh, uh, several years now. And it's it's always been it's I, I always leave the conversations uh, very fulfilled, very satisfied, um, very excited about the next uh, the next project. And, you know, the good news here is that even though the Eclipse viewer might be over, at least for now, um, and maybe for, for good, <laughs> is that, you know, we've we've become friends and we have um, we have a lot of fun doing other projects together. And so that part of it is not is not over with. And I'm glad for that. Um, but yeah, I'll be curious if the Eclipse sets do come back. I mean, you know, Michael Koreski is, is no longer working for the Criterion Collection, and I think it might be a little bit difficult for them just to, you know, be, be able to turn to one of their staff and say, hey, write up some essays for this this set. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. the, the entire holdup. I imagine Filmstruck has a little bit to do with with the reason that... Um, that things uh, maybe maybe aren't going into the eclipse uh, lineup anymore, but uh, but yeah, I'm the very satisfied. of a DVD only line yeah. as well. You know, I mean, are people really purchasing that? Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll have to do uh, some kind of a, a tally. I know we we've in the past done some of the uh, popularity things on my criterion and all of that. We don't have those numbers right in front of us now, but you know. Uh, if if indeed uh, Criterion ever does release a new Eclipse series set, uh, Trevor and I definitely will do our best to get back together, give a little bit of coverage, and and let folks know what we find inside. 
Uh, but for now, you're right. There are there are future projects ahead. I've got some ideas for a new podcast, and I'm actually going to be discussing that uh, later today with Aaron West. I'm going to be a guest on his uh, Criterion Now podcast, and so uh, I will probably elaborate a little bit more in that setting on what I've got in mind for a new podcast project. So I'll kind of do a little bit of cross promotion there, and hopefully lay out a little intrigue for listeners who might be curious to know what I've got in store. But uh, certainly, it's uh, it's on Criterion's court now. The ball is with them. If they want to keep us going, it's within their power to go ahead and issue a new Eclipse series set. And uh, Trevor and I will be back at it, perhaps with a guest. Maybe it'll just be the two of us. But uh, yeah, it's been a great experience and uh, very gratifying. And uh, again, much, much appreciation for people who've been listening along and, and hopefully... Uh, yeah, visiting, exploring, or revisiting these uh, wonderful films, whether they watch them on Filmstruck, borrow them from a friend, from their library, or have a nice rainbow-colored uh, stack on their shelves. Uh, it's been a real great project. It's a great feeling of accomplishment. I, I definitely uh, am very proud to say, hey, we, we did it. We got one whole series covered, a pretty, a pretty uh, extensive library of films, really, and we did them all. 170 so. films. Yeah. Okay. There you go. There's the number <laughs> right there. So yeah. yeah, good times. Well, Matt, thank you again for lending us your expertise and insights. You definitely you know, opened my eyes and, and ears to some aspects to these films that I've watched several times, but uh, we'll have plenty of reason to come back and check them out once again. So thank you very much for participating in these last three episodes. I was thrilled to be here. It was a lot of fun. I love, uh, I love talking Ozu. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think we're done yet. I think you know we we will definitely try to get a, an autumn afternoon episode going, and uh, there's still more to explore. I will look forward to opportunities to talk with Ozu with you uh, and others in the future. So uh, we're not done yet there either. Okay, sounds good. All right, folks. Well, I think we're going to wrap this episode and this series up. Thanks again for your support, and we will see you online elsewhere. Take care and. Moo. <laughs>